like the very first trip was really, it was enlightening. Um, again, I was what, 18 at the time. Um, I'd been to Western Europe and been out of the country before, but never to, to a place like Haiti. Uh, I think the first thing that really struck me was just the, the gratitude and the love of the people uh, who we visited there. They were so generous and they, they gave us gifts. Uh, they brought us into their house, they gave us food, they gave us water. Uh, that was really remarkable. Um, and again, we were giving them gifts, right? We were giving them solar panels, solar powered lanterns. Uh, and just, it was just this, there was a lot of love there, right? It was a lot of just like selflessness and a lot of giving and a lot of receiving and a lot of loving. Um, and it wasn't really until I remember like the flight home. I, that's when I just kind of like lost it. I remember going to the bathroom on the plane and crying in the bathroom. <laughs> um, but yeah, just kind of being like, it was, it, it was a lot to take in. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, the inbound evangelist himself, Dan Moyle. Welcome to the Storytellers Network podcast. I'm so glad that you are joining me today. In this episode, we get to hear from a visual storyteller and branded content documentarian. Uh, On his website, Luke Rafferty says, if a picture is worth a thousand words, imagine the impact of a short film. Your organization has a story to tell. Through stunning visuals coupled with emotional narratives, we can spark a fire in the hearts of many. Together, let's tell those stories. Man, that sounds so inspiring. And like he's a partner in helping clients tell their stories as a storyteller, which I just think is amazing. And we talk about that, uh, what it took to work with clients like Make-A-Wish Foundation and JetBlue, even as a small one-person video company. So there's hope for all of us in that story and so much more. Uh, Today, Luke Rafferty on the Storytellers Network shares his storytelling craft his successes and stumbles, in other words, his story as a video storyteller. As we get into that conversation today, a friendly reminder to visit thestorytellersnetwork.com for more episodes, how to contact me, and for other resources to help you tell your story. And if you're new here, text STORYTELLERS to 31996 to subscribe. That's STORYTELLERS, 31996 to subscribe. Now, let's get to those stories. So thanks for joining me today, Luke. I appreciate you taking time. Now we are, this is airing later, but we're recording on Labor Day weekend. So thanks for taking time out of your, your holiday. Of course. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Excited to talk. Yeah. Uh, so welcome to the show. And I like to start off by uh, the idea to me as the Storytellers Network is that storytellers don't have to live in like the meccas of, let's say, Hollywood, or if you're a writer, you know, somewhere, I don't even know where a writing went, Paris, right? <laughs> like, you know, storytellers can be anywhere. So where are you located? Uh, I'm actually located in Philadelphia. Right. Uh, grew up in Philadelphia, went to school in Syracuse, New York. Uh, so a little upstate, uh, but now I'm back down in Philadelphia. So you're right, from a logistical standpoint, it's right smack in the middle of New York City and D.C. It's an hour and a half to either, uh, which makes work easily. I can market myself to any of those places. But you're right, I, I personally find it easier to, I'm about 30 miles outside the city in some suburbs, and it's just nicer out there. Uh, slower pace of life and I love visiting New York, but my favorite part of visiting New York is leaving. <laughs> so no offense to anybody up there, but I don't know. Um, yeah, you, you don't need to be where the stories are to tell them. I think is a, it's interesting that you say that, but I completely agree with that. Yeah. And do you find yourself traveling to New York quite a bit, or do you find enough work? Now, 
and I ask this because, I mean, you're obviously a, a video specialist. We'll get into that in a minute. But um, as I said in the intro, you, you're, you have a video company. Do you right. find work around you in Philly in that area? Or do you go to New York for that? So I actually find that a lot of my work is derived from New York, um, but isn't actually in New York. Hmm. So a lot of my clients are located in New York and they'll use me because I'm close to New York, but the job is out in California or out in Wisconsin, uh, something like that. So I've actually shot in New York, I think twice in the past year, uh, which I've shot in LA more than, <laughs> more than that in the past year. Uh, but for some reason, and, and I think, and I've had a few conversations with some friends that you are treated as a local to wherever you are, right? So I, I can't market myself locally in LA, right? Just because for, and even if I offer to pay the airfare, people just won't do it, right? People treat me differently or will, will come to me for a New York based job because I'm near New York. So even if the job isn't in New York and they're in New York, they're going to think New York minded. So that's the only advantage I've truly found to being in New York. So if you do look on my website, it says New York, Philly, DC. Uh, are my locations. Uh, if you read really closely, you realize I'm the only person who works at my company. So you do the math on that one. But yeah, so I think that that's the one interesting thing about being near is like, you still have to be connected to these cities somehow. Right. So whether that's, you know, maybe you live in Iowa, but you go up to Chicago every week enough to kind of build that relationship. That's something I thought about, like I am really attracted to the rural world you know i would love to live three four hours outside of the city right and not just go to my local airport and travel and i know a few kind of higher tier people who do do that um, i think you need to work up to that you need to be so attached to those you know because most of the work is coming down from the cities is what i'm trying to say mm. so i think that you need to stay connected to them somehow and have you always been a visual storyteller i mean is video your like a passion going way back for you yeah, uh, so I started as a photographer, um, probably in like eighth grade or so. So I guess that goes pretty far back. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, ninth grade, I really wanted to be an aeronautical engineer and join the Navy. Uh, and then I totally, I joined the student newspaper in high school and that just changed everything. I realized then that I'd always liked taking pictures, but it was like a hobby. Uh, that's when I realized that actually you could take photos as a career or take photos with a purpose. Right. So I could go to a rally, I go to a political rally, to a car accident, and I could take these photos, share these photos, and now allowed somebody to go to a place where they couldn't have gone before. Right. So not everybody can travel the world. I can go travel the world on their behalf, show them the photos and show them that. Right. That's a silly example, but kind of that idea of like, I can go report the news for these people. So that really showed me that it was actually a viable career. Um, And then, so I followed the photography path. Um, freshman year of college, so I majored in photojournalism in school. Freshman year, went to had an internship uh, at the local newspaper in Philadelphia, and that's when it totally switched for me from photo to video, uh, because I was doing like three or four assignments a day. It was go take a portrait of somebody, be here by two thirty, send those photos by three fifteen, and do this, and then be back by five because the deadline's at six. And I just kind of felt that I was never able to connect with these people, uh, and that it was just kind of like check marks, like all right, I got three photos, I know where it's going to run on the page, so I'm done here. Uh, whereas a, a video for me is totally different. It's like a day or two days worth of gathering the footage, getting to know the person, usually do the interview at the end once we're actually comfortable with each other as friends. And I felt that that was more like, not only respectful to the person, right? If I want to tell their story, I'm going to tell their story. I'm not just going to stop in and do a profile. Um, I think that, yeah, and, and that's really what attracted me to, to video because it was just a longer form, right? So kind of the shortest videos I do were about like two minutes or so usually around two to five minutes, which I think is enough to really delve into it, but not a longer, longer form video. Uh, whereas a photo essay could be two, three photos. 
Uh, and I just don't, uh, that doesn't allow me to connect with people in the, in the same way. Um, don't get me wrong. There's very, very talented photographers out there who can tell a story in a series of photos. Uh, I was just attracted more to the video side of things. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there are some amazing photographers. I, I, I'd like to think I can take a decent picture, but yeah, a true photographer has got some art behind them. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And the curation of that's just a whole another level. Yeah. yeah. How, how was that switch for you then? I mean, if you, if you're a storyteller, it sounds like, and you're interested in sharing stories to bring people there. Like, I, I love that idea of I can take you, you know, across the country just by a photograph and by a story. How was that switch for you to go from still photography into video? Did you find it difficult? Did you find anything in particular that kind of be like, or is it just, Hey, I'm a storyteller. I can kind of do any of them. How was it? For yeah. you? I, I, I did struggle with that for a bit and I'll go back to, I, we'll keep going back to college just because that was a very fundamental where I changed a lot of kind of my path there. Cause I did enter into photojournalism, mm -hmm. uh, which again, the photo is literally in the name. Uh, so I came back that summer and I was like, well, I guess I need to switch to television, radio and film because it has the word film in it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, talking to some friends and talking to some advisors and some mentors, I realized that actually that, you know, basically the two majors are very similar, but at the end of the day, all you need to learn to do is make a pretty picture, right? So a photo versus a video, we're still talking about lighting. We're still talking about framing, whatever. Um, and then the journalism aspect is just storytelling. So basically it doesn't matter if you do film, if you do photography, if you do photojournalism, if you do just journalism, as long as you kind of have the skills there, it's now up to you how you apply them. Um, so when I was in school, I was kind of one of the few people doing video. So I stayed in the photojournalism route. Uh, a lot of my friends were still just doing still photo. Uh, a few people were kind of dabbling in, in video, but I really kind of like branded myself as doing just video. Uh, and it was interesting at the time. Uh, I mean, it was recent, but in the time it was kind of a lot of the curriculum was set up just for photo. So I always kind of felt like, um, a lot of the rules didn't apply to me or it was kind of like, here, turn in 15 photos by next week. And it's like, well, we're one video or two videos. So it was kind of interesting, kind of making my own path, um, of figuring out what exactly it meant to do video. Uh, and I just kind of self-adapted it from there. So I think that transition, then I think another thing was that it was, it was really well received too. So I think social media really helps with that. I think videos do phenomenally on Facebook and on other social mediums where, and obviously on Instagram photos do well. Um, but I think just at first it was like, wait, wait, again, like the six, one video can just in 60 seconds can do so much. Right. Whereas like one photo can do a lot. Um, but you know, if a photo is worth a thousand words, is a video worth 10,000 words or 24 frames a second times 60. I mean, now we're talking a lot of words. Um, so I think that was just kind of, I felt more freedom in video, uh, as well as just, there's more, there's more levels to it. Right. So you have, the audio, you have the, the timing, you have the, the visuals of it. Whereas in a photo, you're just kind of stuck with that one visual. Now we have these different layers and you can play off of each other. And even well after you're done shooting, when you're editing, you can still totally change the story uh, or not change, totally rewrite the story and retell the story um, while editing. Whereas in photo, you just kind of have what you have. Right. Yeah. Very cool. That's interesting. So any, so any storytellers out there, you know, you, it sounds like what you did is uh, borrow from different areas, learn from where you were and apply it and like just keep evolving as a storyteller yeah. to find where you are today. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And, and on your website, I, I read this in the, in the intro, but uh, I want to reference this again. If a picture is worth a thousand words, imagine the impact of a short film, what you just kind of said there. Um, together, let's tell those stories. This right. is how you, how you end that phrase. So it, it sounds inspiring. I love how it sounds. And it sounds kind of like you're a partner and helping your clients tell their stories. So while you're a storyteller, you're helping them tell their stories. So there's all this partnership, right? Is that how that works for you? 
Yes, that was, yes. So so I definitely see myself as a partner with the client. Um, And as you said, I mean, I I was trained as a photojournalist, was a photojournalist for a bit. Uh, I'll definitely, I mean, I'll be honest right now, a lot of my stuff is client work, right? Which I don't see as journalistic. I do see, you know, and I I learned, you know, back when, especially doing video, right? As a journalist, there's a lot of ethical things, right? Like, do you ask the guy to pick up the hammer? Because technically that's not very ethical. You know, you have to film him picking up on his own cord. With client work, I'll, I'll tell you what color hammer to use and where and when and when I'm going to come put the light in. Right. Um, it's still storytelling. It's still nonfiction. Guess what? The guy uses the hammer every day for work. Whether I told him to use it or he's using it, we're still telling the story. Um, so I think, but going back to the original question. So I, I do, in, to that point, I, I, I bring the client in from day one. Whereas I think in a journalism standpoint, we're taught that like, you know, I remember back in sophomore year when somebody in our class got trouble in trouble because they were doing like a portrait series of somebody for the the student on newspaper and they like got lunch with the person after right so it was like oh you broke the journalistic ethic you can't do that right and so it was like okay well i'm bringing in the person from the beginning so that's that's when i refer to the client or when i make it seem like i want them on board with me i do because i when they're paying me to do it right whether the company or a marketing firm whatever it is it's clearly their vision as much as it is mine. Um, and, I, and, I, and I want that to be clear. And, and that, that, that's where the wording from the website comes from. Uh, it's just that I want to work on it together. And I think it also, like, I, I don't know best. I, I certainly don't. I, I want to hear your ideas. You, you know the story best. You're coming with me and I'll help you tell it. Um, but I want to hear your thoughts and I'll come in with my thoughts and I'll, I'll negotiate some of mine. You know, I'm certainly not too egotistical to think that my ideas are best. Uh, so that, that's where that collaboration, I think just, especially as working by myself too, I don't have other people in my office I can look to for collaboration. So I need the client to be that collaborator. And so when you go to a client and you're doing that, you're making a video. So you're more of a, a smaller niche boutique, maybe not niche, but you're a smaller boutique. So rather than like a large crew, is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. So I have started to, I mean, in the past few years, I've definitely grown myself. I've started using the term scalable production company. Mm. Uh, so I can do it one man band. I can do everything or I can call up a bunch of contractors, bring them in, have no overhead, pay them at cost. And I can have a 10 man crew if you'd like. Um, but I've actually found that there's more interest in the one man band stuff because people feel really right. They're trusting me with their story. And it goes back to that, that everybody's emotionally attached to a story. So if they're trusting with me, they want to know that Luke is going to be there on the initial phone call. I'm going to be there when we're outlining, when we're storyboarding, during the filming, when we're doing the questions for the interviewing, during the edits, and during the publishing. So if I can, having knowing that the same person, the same email address, the same, you can text me anytime, right, that I'm there, that I think that gives them a greater comfort. Uh, whereas if you kind of go to a production company and you have the pre-production team and this team and that team, uh, it, you know, it all just kind of gets lost throughout the, and sometimes it does. I mean, other times the teams do way better than I could ever do. I know that we're working on different stuff. Uh, but I think that there's a value in kind of being that small boutique, as you say. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's interesting. I've, you know, talked to a couple of other storytellers that, that have the crews, um, or have smaller ones and larger ones. Like it's, it's all over the, over the map and it's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Obviously it's working for you, Luke, because you've got clients like JetBlue, Make-A-Wish Foundation, Hillary for America. I mean, some big names. Yeah. So it's working. Now, what was the journey like to, to get to that level for you? I mean, I'm sure you didn't just obviously didn't pick up a camera and go, Hey, I'm working with make a wish. Like what was that journey like for you? How did you get there? Yeah. I think the bottom line is that it's all about the relationships. Uh, so we talked even before we started recording here um, about where I got a lot of my work is just word of mouth. Uh, so 
I think um, a lot of it is just, you know, I, I worked with, with Bill on a project and he says, oh, Luke's great. So then Joe calls me up and, and says, oh, yeah, Courtney said that Joe, you know, it's, it's all just this network, right? Mm-hmm. And again, I think it goes back to stories. People hold their stories or their brands or whatever they want me to work with so valuable that they're not just going to give it to some guy. They're not going to call 1-800-make-me-a-video, right? They're not just going to type it into Google. They want to go with the guy who their friend or their guy on the other side of the office says, knows, you know, is, is trustworthy, right? And it goes back to same with a contractor or a realtor, right? If you're not going to just go buy a house from anybody, you kind of want the person who goes to your same church or the person who your cousin recommends who says, all right, I've betted this guy, he's good. Uh, so I think that that really uh, kind of helps, kind of helped me get to uh, some clients a lot more so than I could have ever really like imagined. Uh, so all those clients that you listed, I, I didn't really go after. Uh, the only one is the the Hillary one. Uh, obviously, that's political. Um, that was I've never really been interested in politics, uh, and that was total. I mean, that's a whole segue. But that was really interesting to how you get assigned with what you work uh, work for, right? So a lot of people were really shocked when they found out that I wasn't the most diehard Hillary fan, right? I, I just kind of was like, oh, I'm gonna work with one of these two. It's really big and a lot of work. I'll just kind of pick that side. It's you know, I'll average closer to that one. Um, you know, and you come off and think, wait, you're not like 120% for Hillary? It's like, no, not the same way I'm not 100, 120% for JetBlue just because I work for them, right? I fly other airlines just because I work for that one, right? And I think it's interesting that, you know, you are kind of assigned to these brand identities, especially with politics. Um, but just that idea of, it's interesting working with, with brands that have the reputation uh, or kind of have a, a national identity. Yeah. But yeah, sorry, kind of segue there. No, it's it's all good. That's it's a great conversation, man. I love it. Um, so so whether it's one of those huge clients or whether it's something that happened to you personally, is there a story that changed your life? You know, you said earlier that getting into journalism was like, oh, you know, working for the school newspaper, that was a light bulb moment. But is there any other time in life where a story has just rocked your world? And you're like, man, I've got to really help tell the story or something. Oh, that's a really good good question. I think. I'll probably come back to, or probably think of something later on. Maybe we'll ask to come back to that. But I think the biggest thing for me right now is like, is usually drumming up support through story. Uh, so usually when I see a natural disaster, uh, a lot of times I always, I've been, I've had this idea probably for like 10 years. It's like, I need to talk to Red Cross. So when there's a natural disaster, they send me out there and within 36 hours, we have a video that shows the need. It shows the story of this place, right? What, you know, and you think of last year at this time with all those hurricanes down in the Caribbean, Right. It, it, sure. Saying there was a bad hurricane, we need some money. Uh, yeah, I'm not give some money to that. But to see a story, to hear a story, what's the story of the island? Let's. And again, we're not talking about exploiting. We're talking about the story. Right. So what's the story? And what's the story of my donation going to be? What happens if I give you ten dollars? Where does it go? What's the story of that? What's the story? You know, or what's the story of that town? So I think that for me, um, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to go to Haiti three times since the earthquake. Uh, back in 2010, and that was really that was that was back uh, the end of high school. I went for the very very first time, and I think that that was really tra- not traumatizing, but that really probably set the tone for a lot of the work I do, uh, and really kind of stuck with me. Uh, just like you know what the yeah me going there and telling the story of these people, and we were installing solar panels, so showing the effect of that, and showing uh, what you know these donations from a place up in Albany could do. 2,000 miles away in Port-au-Prince, that was really, really powerful for me. So I think, going back to your initial question, I think that those kind of stories are really the most powerful for me. Uh, because it, 
brings about change. Yeah. And if, and if I think about, you know, I mean, me just out of high school, I can't imagine going to Haiti and being, I mean, I can imagine being there and being moved, but I can't imagine going there like on my own volition right out of high school. What was that like for you? What did it, what did it feel like when you were there? I mean, can you, can you now go back in your mind and like smell the smells and hear the sounds and see the kids? I mean, what was that like for you? Yeah. So I went with the organization. It was like, uh, out of all me, it was about me and four other people, I think. Um, a really, really small delegation. We were there for about like six days. Um, and it was just, I think at first you're just numb to it. I mean, so that was back in 2012. Uh, so two years after, and I think actually the most depressing thing was seeing how, or actually, so, so I went 2012, I went 2013. I think the more depressing trip was actually 2013 because it was a year after 2012. I said, nothing's changed in a year. Right. So, I mean, clearly I had seen nothing had changed in two years since the earthquake. I was like, now we're three years out. Nothing's changed. I was here literally 52 weeks ago and nothing has changed. And I think that was like, that was frustrating for me. Um, but back to your initial, like the very first trip was really, it was enlightening. Um, again, I was what, 18 at the time. Um, I'd been to Western Europe and been out of the country before, but never to, to a place like Haiti. Uh, I think the first thing that really struck me was just the the gratitude and the love of the people uh, who we visited there. They were so generous and they, they gave us gifts. Uh, they brought us into their house. They gave us food. They gave us water. Uh, that was really remarkable. Um, and again, we were giving them gifts, right? We were giving them solar panels, solar powered lanterns. Uh, and just, it was just this, there was a lot of love there, right? It was a lot of just like selflessness and a lot of giving and a lot of receiving and a lot of loving. Um, and it wasn't really until I remember like the flight home. I, that's when I just kind of like lost it. I remember going to the bathroom on the plane and crying in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just kind of being like, it was, it, it was a lot to take in. Um, but I think going the two subsequent times, uh, really helped me kind of process it up that all. Um, yeah. And it, and it sounds to me like, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds to me like you, you see having this platform, this voice, this, this, this privilege of being able to do this as a responsibility kind of, you know, even if you're working with clients, like let's say, you know, JetBlue or something, um, it sounds to me like you still see that as a, as a responsibility that you have almost not, not, not totally altruistic, but like you've got power in video. I want to do something good with it. Is that how you see yourself? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be too, too righteous, <laughs> Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, you, you are right. I mean, I do, I, I think I enjoy having a voice, right. And I enjoy getting to, especially I, another segue I really like being self-employed because I get to choose who I give voice to right uh, I don't have anybody calling you know I do get clients who call me up and I think mm, I'm busy that day right <laughs> um whether it's true or not I get, I get to choose that um but yeah I think like having having the the privilege to to tell stories is really is, is really really cool um I just personally I'm self-aware that I care a lot about a lot of things um, you ask my fiance. <laughs> we we joke about that that I'm often more emotional or just more thoughtful and caring about things, uh, just as a person. And it's like, and I think I I found something that I I found a career that I can put all that into, right? Like I I do care, and I, I'm sure a lot of people could go to Haiti and maybe be unaffected by it. Not saying that they're bad people, just saying everybody feels very differently. But no, I remember you know every story. I, I do feel that every video or every story that I've worked on, I've, I have put a level of myself into. Uh, and while that could be seen as draining, I almost see it as ener energizing. Yeah. I, I had the same thing with, with my wife. Uh, I think I cry at Oreo commercials and like, <laughs> you know, she'd be like, nah, I don't care. Um, <laughs> so I, I get it, man. And, and yeah, and it's, and it is pretty incredible. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's righteous. I think it's, 
it's that it's the idea that we have these talents and these platforms. And I think any storyteller out there, if you can, like you said, look, if you can tell a story, you can move people. Right. And I think that's a responsibility that we have as when we have that talent and that, that means. So uh, I, I like that you're doing that stuff. How, what was, what was the work like with Make-A-Wish Foundation? Um, so that one was actually, that was fun uh, in a way. So the, the subject of that uh, boy named Jack, um, he is a very alive, healthy and successful right now. Uh, he's actually going into junior year of college. Uh, so I think just seeing his growth there obviously made it a happy story. Um, but at the time he was 16 and chose to donate, um, you know, every, uh, he, he was given a wish by Make-A-Wish Foundation and his wish was to give back to his high school and to build a new baseball field for them. Uh, so they have like an average of like $10,000 budget per wish. Uh, and the new field came like, I think it's like two, a quarter million or 300,000. Uh, so a little over budget. <laughs> um, but I think the, the story there, I mean, there were tons of stories there. Uh, but the main one was how the Make-A-Wish uh, chapter up there in upstate New York and the entire community came together to actually make this wish happen. Wow. So through in-kind donations and just additional monies, uh, they, they, they made the baseball diamond happen and he was able to throw out the first pitch and they played his senior year on that field. Uh, so that was really, really cool to see that. And I think for me, I, and I, like I said, there's so many stories within there and I think the purpose, it started for me, as just like, I need to go find a story of, you know, I, I, I'd like to tell the story of Jack. And at the end, it was like, well, what's the story of Make-A-Wish here? Uh, and then at the very end, you know, Make-A-Wish National came in at the end and we were kind of talking and it was like, oh, wait, now we can actually use this video to promote this brand. And I think that's kind of led into the branded content, uh, right? So it's not really until the end when Make-A-Wish is brought in and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I just fell in love with this kid, Jack, and the story, Jack. Oh, it's all one big commercial. I see. Now you want me to write a check to Make-A-Wish. <laughs> well, you got me. I'm going to. Yeah. Right? So that goes into the, just that the emotion... I mean, emotionally uh, motivating someone is the most powerful motivator we have, right? And that goes back to any story we tell or we know that, just that emotions move. Uh, so to get somebody to go buy your brand, to so you get somebody to donate to Make-A-Wish, get somebody to like a subject, um, I think that that's what makes branded content so successful. But that's what the Make-A-Wish uh, video kind of was for me, it was that transition into, uh, into branded content to realize that you could make a documentary hybrid with a commercial um and everybody's happy absolutely yeah and and there's so much great content out there that does move us right. how if, if if there's a storyteller listening right now that's thinking you know a video sounds good i tried my hand at something else but i want to try how do you kind of set yourself apart you know your, your visuals look great obviously you know the luke rafferty visuals.com looks amazing as a website you do great work how do you how else do you set yourself apart in that in that world of very busy media I think the biggest thing, and not to repeat myself, is to care, right? So I think is you put yourself into what you work on, whether you want to or you don't, and whether you're aware of it or you don't, or you're not. Uh, I mean, I could go through, and I don't know if anybody else would, but I personally, I could go through all the videos I made or all the videos on my website, tell you which ones I, I was really, really passionate about or not. And I wonder if the quality shows. I, me personally, I know it does. There's certain ones that aren't on the website because they paid really, I, you know, some of the best paying work I've ever done. Because I'm not like, I mean, it just paid the work. But, and the client was really happy with it. I was happy with it. It's fine. But it's not like that phenomenal, phenomenal work. Uh, and I think the Make-A-Wish is another example of that. I really like the foundation of Make-A-Wish. So I went to them and I said, I want to make a video for you guys. What do you got? Right. And came together. And, and so right, the, the first thing was my passion in there. I went to them because I was passionate about them. 
Same with JetBlue. I had a friend who worked there, and I love aviation. As you can see, with all the airplanes. I did, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I went to them and said I entered this for like two years until so he was like, "Fine, I set up a meeting with you and the guy in the video department." Shut up. <laughs> um, but again, it's like, you and I remember like coming out of that the sh the shoot with the JetBlue thing was like a five hour shoot. I filled up my mem like three or four of my memory cards. I like never. I usually go like halfway through a memory card um on any shoot and it's just like wait i like was literally shooting the whole time i was so excited to be here it was like running around on an airplane all day that's cool uh and so i think just that idea of like bringing your passion is the first step um other than that is for me i found a lot of success in identifying the client first and then letting them bring the story to to fruition so again back in school out they'd say go find the story and it's like well i don't know uh that's like so broad it just kind of shuts you down uh, and a lot of people still tell you that. It's like, oh, well, like, if you need to build up your portfolio, just go find a story you're passionate about. Take it from there. Like, I don't know where to start with that. So, like, maybe find an issue you're passionate about, aviation or homelessness or something like that. Now go find an organization and ask them to work with you. Because now they, they're the gatekeeper of all the stories in a way, right? They, they know a lot of the key players in, the, in that field. They know a lot of really interesting stories in that field. And once you build up that, that trust with passion and with the straightforwardness of telling them your goal, they they might even just connect you with the story and kind of set you free from there. So I, I think that would kind of be my, my advice of how to get started is just find where you're passionate about, connect with an organization and kind of take it from there. Uh, and, and how do you balance that between, you know, you, you referenced, you know, clients that pay you well, that everybody's happy with your, with the, the end product. It's not like you're making something for a really bad organization, some evil corporation or whatever. Right. But, but you're doing client work. How do you balance that between that and your passion? Do you just find, like, I just, I just asked you that. How do you find that balance? Yeah. So I try, I mean, I know I just said that I don't because I put in my passion, but I'm going to undo that. I try really hard to do the same work on every single job, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes I'll do the exact same video and charge a different price. And you see that in a lot of the retail world, right? You like, you see the same mattress made by a different company with the same exact price or same food, right? Or, you know, was, and, and I think it does, it does, that doesn't matter. And I, I don't pride myself on that. I just different clients have different budgets uh, and, and then there's obviously everything is charged fairly and there's, you know, there's different barriers and accesses, but when I'm on the job, I really try not to think about what I'm getting paid for it. If I'm getting paid a third of what that other guy, like I'm going to do the exact same work. Sure. And I think that that uh, is really important. That work ethic is really, really important and should, and I think that will also separate you as well. Um, Cause it goes back to putting yourself into the story. If you're actually, care about the story you're telling and you're actually emotionally invested in it the money is like third or fourth down the list of what i'm thinking about when i'm actually out there yeah. um so yeah i i think that idea of that not all clients are the same uh not all topics are the same but you kind of have to treat them the same by putting your hundred percent into every everything you do and, he, and and I, I hear you saying basically, even if it's not your passion, you bring passion to it. And even if it doesn't come through the same as let's say a Make-A-Wish video, you, your, your work ethic, your passion behind the quality of work is what's important to you. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that consistency is what people, people look for. You know, I mean, they are going to go through every video on your website. And if there is some sort of pattern of like, wait, like every other video is really crappy. What's the matter with this guy? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, the same way you're going to go through every car that a manufacturer makes before you buy it, right? It's like, oh, they make one really good car, but then every other car they make is really crappy. I'm like, well, I'm just going to go with another manufacturer. Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, you have to put you all into everything you do. And what's one of the biggest challenges 
for you personally with storytelling um, that you face every, every, every time you go out? Uh, I think one of the bigger is like the post-production side of things. First of all, I just, it's a little tedious, not my favorite. Um, but more importantly, I think it's like you have, you have now become invested. I said earlier, I don't have much of an ego, which I think is really a good thing. But at the same time, like, and maybe not an ego, but I'm become emotionally invested, right? So I, let's say I interview three characters and I really like their subjects and I really like this one guy's story and the client's coming in and she's saying like, you can't, you know, we need to get down to 60 seconds. We got to lose, lose this guy. And like, that's really hard for me uh, because I don't know if I care too much or whatever, but I think from, you know, I've slaved over this out there in the field, done this. I'm now edited it for like 20 hours now you're telling me just completely cut it out and i think like that's and it's not even because i think it's great it's you know it's not that oh my work's so good i shouldn't cut it up it's more just like oh wait i'm so attached to this Um, i hate losing things uh so i think i think that's like the hardest part is the discernment in the post-production of like what are we going to include how are we going to tell this story uh and then i think the most important thing is just putting yourself in the shoes of your viewer right so like again shorter is better especially in this world of oversaturated media like no one wants to see your five, or at least in my line of work, no one wants to see a five minute video. Two minutes is like maybe even a little too long. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, right? So yeah, so it's like, well, actually am I doing justice to this guy's story by not telling even more? You know, like, am I doing justice by cutting it down? Because in a way, yeah. Because that way at least somebody's going to stick around for the whole thing instead of s- skipping through it. Uh, so that, that discernment I think is the hardest part. And who's, and who's the one that you mentioned, if they say cut this, is that, are you, is that the client themselves? Are you working with somebody who's like, like if I'm a storyteller and I'm a writer, I have an editor that comes back to me before the right. book is published. Who, who's, who's kind of working with you over your shoulder on that? For me, it's directly to the client usually. Uh, so I think that's the joy of being a one man band uh, is like I am the editor uh, and the producer and the script writer. So yeah, basically, I usually send a draft. You know, I kind of do a draft from start to finish, like a three-minute thing. Usually, I go like a minute longer because I know they're going to cut things out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I send it to them, and I just kind of work with them. They send back bulleted points. They send back time codes. We get on a call. We do whatever. Usually, like three or four revisions, uh, probably like three, which is not that bad. Uh, but yeah, so it's usually me directly with the client. Uh, sometimes not So not usually with the person in the video either, which is also sometimes a little tricky too. I was like, well, I'd actually like to hear their opinion because it's their words we're talking about here. Uh, but sometimes that's not always possible or just not always the just the process, which is totally understandable. But yeah, it's usually the person who works at the company uh, or a lot of times with political stuff, it'll be the person like the, the advertising firm or the PR firm who's working with the, with the political client. Gotcha. Kind of interesting. Um, now, you've referenced, referenced a couple of times social media. Um, how do you see this world of social media affecting video in particular when it comes to storytelling? Yeah. Um, it's changed it a lot. Um, uh, so, uh, not all of, all my stuff always goes online. I don't really do anything for TV, uh, anything like that. So it's interesting because sometimes I'll get frustrated at how everything's always changing. And I have to like sit down and remind myself that like my job did not exist 20 years ago. Not that it was different 20 years ago, that the medium which I'm working for did not exist 20 years ago. So chill, <laughs> that is changing because I'll guess what, 20 years from now, might not exist either. Right. So just kind of like, you just kind of got to be flexible with it. But I think the biggest thing is just how things are consumed 
I mean, you see these scary stats about uh, completion rates of videos. Uh, I think back in 2016, uh, I read something that 40% of videos are listened without sound. Like, I put hours into choosing what music to put behind a video. You're going to tell me <laughs> you're not listening to it with sound? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and like, right, it's like, well, if you have text on the bottom, if you have closed captions, a whole different uh, percentage of completion rates as opposed to if you don't. So all these different games you can play to keep the person engaged, right? Like if you have three second cuts, you might keep them longer. If you have half a second cuts, now they're really engaged for longer. If you have 10 second cuts, forget about it. Uh, so just all those things of like, you have to trade, uh, as sure as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, like, oh, I really want this nice like 10 second drone shot, as 10 second pan. Well, who's this video for? Because it's not for me, it's not for Luke. Uh, it's kind of for the client, but even more than for the clients, for the client's viewers. Uh, so yeah, I need to make a lot of sacrifices there and kind of have to stay. I mean, I consume more social media than I wish I did. Uh, but sometimes I tell myself like, you actually have to, yeah, ha I mean, you have to know what's going on in the world. You have to know what you're competing against and what you're feeding into. Uh, so I think like that is the biggest thing is just that it's always changing, but just, you have to keep, you have to figure out a way to keep it engaging. Um, whether it's a bunch of quick cuts at the beginning, really dramatic music at the beginning, some powerful uh, soundbite that doesn't really have reference until the end, so kind of like that little hook and grab them. So, I mean, I, and I think in a way, it's kind of challenging. It's like, oh, well, like every video is a challenge to get to the top of the pile, which obviously none of my stuff's ever been, I mean, there's no such thing as the top of a never-ending uh, media pile. But yeah, I think it's just like every video has that new challenge, which is fun in a way. And yeah, you said competition. So this made me think of something. What do you, what do you see is the competition for video storytellers? Hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing is brands, I, 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 social media actually, which is funny because social media is what gives me work. Uh, but it's brands who think that, or not think, or brands who are able to kind of do it all on their own. Uh, so I think there's a new advertising style the past few years that's like, Rough and dirty is actually better, right? So like if we just take crappy iPhone photos and put them up or really pixely iPhone videos and put them up as like an Instagram story, people might kind of relate to that better. It's like, oh, it's kind of true. Shoot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's why I'm like, well, you need a story. That's where I'm going to come in. Uh, but yeah, so I think like that's the biggest risk is, and I think that was the biggest risk to photography 20 years ago is like, oh wait, now you can get a really nice digital camera for like 200 bucks. Oh. I don't need a photographer as much as I need to, or at least I'm going to pay him a lot less. And that's where a lot of photo staffs have been laid off because guess what? iPhone can do a great job taking a photo for a car accident or whatever new breaking news there is. So I think that that's the biggest risk we have is just kind of being replaced by technology, which is funny because technology is what gave us our jobs. So like I said, it's kind of there's ways this job might not exist in 20 years and the job of a storyteller will, the job of a visual social media teller, you know, social media, that won't. So just have to stay awake and figure out how to change and figure out. Yeah. Change. I was just going to say, figure out how to evolve, change, yeah. evolve, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you think it's going to look in 20 years? I mean, if, if it did, if what you do didn't exist 20 years ago in this exact way, you know, how do you think those sto us storytellers, any of us yeah. can, can plan for that future of 20 years from now? What's that going to look like? So, I think I'm going to back that a little bit, but so at first I think the, the way we consume media will be totally different. Um, I think social media has peaked. I think it peaked a few years ago. 
uh, I think even just consuming technology and digitalness. I mean, if people, my, my own niece and nephew are like eight and 10, I, they hate phones and they hate how adults are always on their phones. They're always yelling at us for being on our phones. And like, sure, they love playing Fortnite or whatever on the iPad, but at the end of the day, deep within, it's always been this distraction, right? And it's always been this negative thing. Whereas for our generation or, you know, a few years older, it's it's this uh, a novelty. It's this newfound thing of like, well, I can never look this up 30 years ago. So that's really cool. So I think that that's going to change. And I think technology might decrease. I don't know. That's speculation. But I think separate from that, storytelling will change. It never has changed from thousands of years ago. I mean, the idea of just of a story being that story arc and having an issue and overcoming that issue and having character development and having an outcome and happening negative, that will always emotionally drive people. How we're going to get our stories out there, um, I'm, I'm always going to be visual because nobody wants to hear me talk. So I'm always going to be a visual storyteller. Um, what visual medium probably doesn't exist yet. The same way 20 years ago it didn't exist. Uh, but the, the idea of telling a story to promote something, promote a change of heart, promote a brand, promote a cause, that'll always be there. Yeah. Uh, do you see kind of some stuff out there right now, like virtual reality, augmented reality? Are you thinking about working in any of that at this point? Or are you still pretty like set on where you're at? Um, I'll probably listen to this in 20 years and laugh myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what's next. Um, I worked a little bit in like 360 video, which is, I guess, VR, not augmented. Um, it's more frustrating than anything else. It's frustrating to film. It's frustrating, so, to, it's frustrating to consume right now, I think. Uh, right? You put the phone in there and then you have to like, you have to hit go on the phone before you're hitting the goggles. But if you don't, then you have to take the goggles off and then it's already in the view mode. So you're all, you know, it's like, I can just, I would rather just flip through three photos and I can stitch it together in my head. Um, but I think that, I think that is a change that's possibly coming up. Other than that, I, yeah, I mean, I can't really foresee anything. I, I, I do think augmented reality is really, really fascinating. You know, spent some time with Tilt Brush and things like that. A lot of stuff that like Google, Microsoft's doing and like, okay, that's crazy. Right. So now we're like manipulating spaces. Now we're building things. Now we're walking through things. Um, that's really, yeah, I think that's, that's the future. Uh, as far as simply like, oh, I'm going to put a 360 camera on top of a mountain so you can see some panos. That's the first step to it. Yeah. But I don't know how much focusing on 360 alone is really going to take us there. But the, the whole augmented reality world, something to, it's on my radar, but I'm not quite sure exactly how to move into it just yet. Well, and it all seems, it seems like there are, it's all tools, whether it's a drone shot, uh, a virtual reality, a 360, uh, whatever, like it's, it's tools in the toolbox of storytellers to use right. as we see fit that makes right yeah. no exactly and and that's you know people always make fun of me for having so much equipment and stuff it's all tool. you know be like oh what fun toys you have it's all toy tools right the drone and stuff like that like bring it on a lot of shoots don't wind up using it on a lot of shoots same way uh carpenter brings a lot of tools they probably doesn't wind up using yeah a house yeah, builder isn't just a hammer yeah. yeah yeah um but yeah and it looks ridiculous how much stuff i bring on a shoot um but I'm not going to be caught there without, you know, really wanting a drone shot and not having my drone with me. Yeah. Better to have it, not use it than go, ah, oh, I should have had. Yeah, absolutely. So as yeah. a, cons as a consumer, Luke, what, what was one of your favorite stories? I mean, how do you, how do you, and how do you take in stories? What's, what's one of your favorite ways to take in stories? Yeah. Um, I think for me, um, 
probably like the biggest, I mean, just social media, Instagram's probably like the biggest thing um, or the most common thing I'm following right now. Uh, fa- took the <laughs> Facebook app, app off my phone like uh, two years ago, <laughs> mainly more out of a self-control issue than anything else. But also just as a, I mean, I think everybody's kind of experienced Facebook kind of digressing a little bit as a recent. And I think it's, it's funny because it's almost like it makes uh, communi- like webbing and communicating and this person's tagging this and then this comment's connected to that like too much. Right, which I think kind of goes back to my idea that maybe social media has peaked at like, okay, everybody's been like, all right, that's a little bit just too much. Uh, and I think we have seen the numbers of Facebook uh, usage, at least in my generation, even younger generations, declining. Uh, whereas uh, Snapchat, you know, Snapchat and Instagram are, are rising. Um, but for me, I think like, I really do enjoy branded content stuff. And I think also like, just as a snob of visuals, the quality of them are really, really good, right? So the stuff that's sponsored by North Face or National Geographic and stuff like that, that branded content, it's just, that's just fun to watch. It's good, it's beautiful stuff because they have these 50,000, like they have these massive budgets. Whereas, uh, you know, the Make-A-Wish stuff that I shot had a very, very small budget, beautiful story, but not shot as beautifully. So just me personally, what I like to consume is kind of more that, branded content and stuff because it's a, it's a five minute documentary so yeah, i like documentaries but i don't have the patience to watch two hour documentaries <laughs> uh, i like commercials but i'm just gonna go watch commercials <laughs> i like really beautiful photography and visuals so hey look that three minute video on instagram really or you know, on facebook the the uh just checked off all those boxes for me so i think uh yeah, national geographic and new york times are doing really great branded content right now um as well as i think like I really enjoy watching some of the outdoor stuff put on by um, North Face and some other some other outdoor client uh, brands. Yeah, cool. That's all good stuff. Um, it's been a pleasure, Luke. Uh, you know, yeah. we we got introduced by mutual friend uh, Chris Tatum, and I think it was a wise introduction. Uh, appreciate you taking time today. I want to before I let you go, uh, two things. Number one, I want to find out if if you were told tomorrow that you could no, tell no more stories, hmm. what, what would be your last story you'd want told? Um, I think I would want to, I, uh, do something about the polar region. Uh, this is an area that I'm always has, have always been fascinated about and have always just, that's like my end all be all. I've always joked that like, if I get to do a story about polar bears, that'll be my last thing because there's no point of ever shooting more because it can't get better than that. <laughs> uh, and probably a little exaggeration, but I think that, um, and obviously there's the, you know, the climate change side of everything like that. But for me, it's just the passion. Like I am passionate about that region of the world. I'm passionate about the, yeah, the changes going on there and as well as just the inhabitants of that, uh, all the, the animals. And I think it's just a fascinating region. So I think telling a story about that, um, the human animal relationship up there, it would really be, yeah, my number one uh, story that I'd love to tell. That's a great one to go out on. That's awesome. And and the last thing is how do people get in touch with, with Luke Rafferty? Sure. Uh, so you can, I think my email address is on my website, uh, LukeRaffertyVisuals.com, but it's uh, Luke at LukeRaffertyVisuals.com or my personal email, LukeRaff at gmail.com with two Fs. Uh, you can follow on Instagram at Luke Rafferty. Uh, Excellent. Which is my professional and personal account. We'll put those in the, uh, the show notes. People can get a hold awesome. of you, man. Awesome. Great. Thanks for your time today, Luke. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. So once again, thank you so much to my guest, Luke Rafferty, visual storyteller and video creator. Uh, Be sure to visit him online. You can find links to those resources in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing it all over Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, text it, email it, just plain tell somebody anywhere you can share with other storytellers 
is always helpful. And if you're new, be sure to text storytellers to 31996 to subscribe and tell somebody else they can do the same. And please consider leaving us a review. Here's one from Apes17. I always make sure I have a notepad handy while listening to Dan's podcast. I've taken at least one tip to incorporate into my life from each episode. Storytelling is much more diverse than you could ever imagine. I thoroughly appreciate hearing from his guests about what they do and most importantly, why they are doing what they do. Give it a listen. You will enjoy. Thank you so much, Apes. I am so blessed to have such passionate listeners. Until next time, here's to telling our stories and having those stories to tell. Cheers. Thank you.